Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for already worshiping with us, with us uh, this morning. If you're online and joining us, I hope you've been able to uh, uh, participate um, where you're at at home. A shout out to uh, Mark and Cherry Lyons up in Alaska. We have family members uh, uh, from members here of FBC or in Canada who watch uh, every Sunday morning and really around the world. And down in F3, uh, welcome and glad you're, you're down there. Um, we are uh, grateful uh, that if uh, you're visiting with us this morning, um, thanks for being here. And we had a great week last weekend uh, when we were celebrating our 40th anniversary and it was a outside and a wonderful time together and a lot of effort by so many folks here so thank you for making that uh, that possible but it was a great celebration i hope if you attended that you got a sense that that um that god has been very good to us at fellowship bible church and it was a a, a true worship service and celebration of god's faithfulness to us here um, with this church very grateful to the lord back in february of uh, 2018 a couple years ago CBS piloted a new sitcom that they entitled, catch this, Living Biblically. Yeah, two years, I don't know if any of you watch it. The storyline was about a guy who um, was attempting to, to kind of reform his life, and he chose to, uh, he decided he was going to ob literally obey as many of the commands of Scripture as he could in that year. Living Biblically. Except after about eight episodes, CBS canceled it because who wants to sit and watch a 30-minute sitcom of a guy failing miserably living biblically? Now, the sitcom was based on a book that a guy by the name of A.J. Jacobs wrote. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it was entitled The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible, a New York Times bestseller. Now, A.J. Jacobs is a um, self-proclaimed agnostic Jew, and he concluded it was impossible to literally obey the Bible. I mean, literally obey such things like in Deuteronomy 21, where it says, if your son rebels against you, stone him to death. Or, um, uh, you know, a, a, a verse, a command in Scripture that says, love your neighbor just like you love yourself. And so the CBS sitcom, and even A.J. Jacobs, who wrote the book, had come to the conclusion that, or the Apostle Paul had come to 2,000 years ago, um, about the quality of man's life. Uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Someone has uh, counted, I haven't, but someone has counted that there's something like 1,050 commands in the New Testament, commands in the New Testament to follow. Let me just mention some of those commands in the New Testament, just a few of the 1,050. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, and always, always abound in the work of the Lord. Or Ephesians 4, 26, be angry, but don't sin. Sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. How about Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's a command. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. This is a tough one. 
do all things without grumbling and disputing. COVID. How about Philippians 4 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. James 4 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Resist the devil. Or 5 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. There's one. Be patient until the kids go to bed. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Ephesians 5, here's another one. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Or husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Oh, that's just what? 10, 11 commands out of 1,050 commands? And of course, you, you got the 10 commandments in the Old Testament, and then those are expanded into 613 commandments in the, in the law, in the Old Testament law. You've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And Jesus said, you could take all the laws of God and you could summarize them into two. Love God completely and love others fully. Love God, love others. Paul, the apostle, wrote in Galatians 5, verse 14, that the entire law of God can be summarized in one word, love. All the commands can be summarized. Love God fully, love others completely. And the question is, has anyone here listening, has anyone ever fully obeyed the commandments of God? Now, I've done something to you all this morning that is not, not very nice. I have just empowered within each of us that three-letter word, sin, S-I-N. Let me explain what I mean by that. Empowering within us sin. Paul writes and tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is in the commandments. In Romans chapter 7, verse 8, Paul said, apart from the law, sin is dead. The implication is with the law, with the commandments of God, sin is fully alive. He says a couple verses later, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. That's his own personal testimony. Paul said, I came face to face with the commandments of God, and what happened? Sin took the opportunity. Sin took the opportunity because the power of sin is the commandments of God, and sin took the opportunity and deceived me, and I I died. It, it killed me. Now, what, what is Paul saying here? What is the scripture suggesting? I think what God is telling us is that if the Christian life was nothing more than a list of do's and don'ts to follow, our Christian existence would be relegated to 
a ritualistic hour on Sunday morning and the rest of the week just kind of a lifeless, joyless existence. If, if our Christianity was nothing more than this, obey this list of do's and don'ts, the commandments of God, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commandments that are in the Bible, well, we, we wouldn't have a prayer. Christian life would be an absolute miserable failure. In fact, we would find that the harder we tried, by George, I'm going to, I'm going to love that wife, or I'm going, to, I'm going to submit to that husband if it kills me. But I'm going to be patient without grumbling and complaining. If it, you know. I'm going to get up this morning, I'm going to give it my old... The more we try, we'll find the, the more we fail. Because when the commandments of God are given, it incites within us sin. That's what Paul is saying. It flips the switch within us. Sin is empowered. And Paul says it takes an opportunity. It deceives me. It kills me. Now we're studying through the book of Romans. And Paul has emphasized this truth numerous times in the book of Romans. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he wrote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world will become accountable before God because by works of the law no flesh is justified is is right in his eyes why because through the law comes the knowledge of sin you see what is the law what what do the commandments of God do well the law the commandments of God gives us the character of God the holy, righteous standard of the character of God. The law says this is God. He's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect. And we're not. The law exposes that. It says this is the standard of God's perfections and he says now be ye holy and be ye perfect, be ye as perfect perfect as I am perfect, as holy as I am perfect. And so the law, the commandments of God are like a big spotlight that shines on our, on, on our, on our violations of the law, on our sinfulness, on our own unrighteousness. And that's why Paul says, it condemns me. It kills me. I walk away from the commandments of God an absolute failure spiritually and I'm placed under the sentence of death now we've also been reminded in our study of the book of Romans that Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago and he came and he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sinfulness our violations of God's holy righteous character his standard of righteousness Jesus Christ came and he, he took our sin upon himself and he paid that penalty. He died, he shed his blood for us. And then he exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness. He gives us his righteousness as a free gift. It's a great exchange. 
And the moment that anyone puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, by simply receiving that free gift of eternal life in Jesus, the moment a person believes in Jesus as their Savior, our sins are paid for, his righteousness comes over to our account, and the theological term for that is this term justification. He declares us to be acquitted. Be, he, he declares us right, righteous in his eyes. God sees us now no longer in our sinfulness as violators of his law. He sees the righteousness of his son Jesus who's been placed to our account. And in that great exchange, our sins are paid for because they were placed on Jesus. His righteousness comes to our account and we are justified. We are declared right before God. And so Paul would write in Romans 3, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God dis displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in his blood through faith, through faith. In other words, any one of us here, if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's a free gift that can be offered to you right now. Right now, you can transfer your trust off of yourself and onto Christ and Christ alone. And in that wonderful moment of, of faith, a great exchange takes place. Your sins are paid for. And you get the free gift of the righteousness of God. You are declared before a holy God, even though we're not righteous. He declares us to be right. And he now gives us the gift of eternal life forever and ever. That's justification. Jesus Christ gives to undeserving sinners his righteousness. Now, what we've also studied in the book of Romans, specifically in the last this chapter 6 that we're in, is that he also gives us a new identity. You see, when he transfers that righteousness of Christ, he gives us the very life of Christ. And our life is hidden. It's where we're, we're identified with Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn them to, again to Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. By way of review, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The word baptized means to be identified with. And that moment of faith, he immerses us, he places us, he baptizes us, he hides us into the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, uh, from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For verse 5, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a package deal. We trust Christ as our Savior. What, would he, what do we get? We get everything that is Jesus's. His death, his burial, his resurrection to newness of life. So verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that that old Mark Carey, that old you is gone. We've been transferred out of that old realm to a new one. We've got a new identity. Knowing that, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. 
And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So, verse 11, conclusion, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So what Paul is saying in these passages is not only have we been declared right, that's justification, we now have the capacity within us to live righteously, and that word, theologically, that term is called sanctification. We can actually live out on a daily basis the rightness, the commandments, the holy commandments and and righteousness of, of, of God because of Christ who is within us. We have a new identity. We are not the people we once were, so we don't have to do the things we once did. We have been declared right, but now I can live right. I can, I can live out in my practice what I truly am in my position in Christ. Except there's one caveat to this whole thing. Even though we're completely new, a new creation in Christ, the moment we trust Christ, there's one thing that isn't new, and that's this body of sin. This new me that has been raised up to newness of life, this, this resurrected life that is within me, this new creation is encased in an earth suit that is still fallen and sinful. And so my new inner self, encased in this earth suit, which is susceptible and vulnerable to sin, can give way to that body of sin. And so Paul will say again in verse 11, now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But then he says in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its lusts. And therein lies the daily conflict, the struggles. The inner me wants to live for him because it's a, the new creation. The outer me, this, somehow this, the members of my body are susceptible to sin and to the lusts that pull me away. And so the Apostle Paul in the next chapter 7 can say something like this. I find then the principle, evil is present in me, the very one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body that wage war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And the battle rages. If you know Jesus Christ is a person, your personal Savior, you're new, been raised up to newness of life, encased in a body of sin. And Paul, as we get in the Romans chapter 7, will say, man, that's where the battle comes. And so what are we to do? Well, while we recognize our new identity, Paul is saying, in verses 12 and 13, or 13, uh, 12 and 13, he says, you have to now present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Look at verse 12. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But rather, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Mark it and mark it well, the commands that are in this verse. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, but present or, and stop presenting the members of your body to sin, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And the members of your body as now weapons, literally weapons, as instruments of righteousness. What does that look like? We talked about this two weeks ago. It means that you get up in the morning with, a, with an awareness. We're, we're thinking, Christianity is a thinking religion, right? We talked about that. And we get up in the morning with the awareness that I'm going to be moving about with people, rubbing shoulders with people. I, I'm not living in isolation with my family or a neighbor or, or work at school. And this tongue, this, the member of my body, this tongue, can either destroy somebody or can encourage somebody. And I have to present the members of my body as an instrument of righteousness. So I, I have to be aware. I, I present, Lord, as, a, as an offering before you, I give you the members of my body, my, my tongue. And then we go about our day, and all of a sudden we find ourselves, oh, here he comes, that person that just, I, I always have to, Lord, my tongue is going, I would just love to give him a piece of my mind that I could ill afford to lose, but I want to just, so I present it to you, Lord. My eyes, the eyes that can wander, that can see things that they should not see and look upon. Oh, I, Lord, I, 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 present, I present the members of my body to you. I want that to be an instrument of righteousness. I can, I can either turn off that movie and spend some time in the Word. It's a choice. Present the members of your body as instruments for righteousness. My mind. Lord, it'll, it'll wander. Lord, I pray that control my mind, my thoughts, because what a man thinketh, so he is. Here I am, Lord. I'm willing to fight the fight of faith. Here I am, Lord. I believe what is true about who I am, my real identity. Here's the members of my body, and I present them to you. And as we live each day, consciously presenting the members of our body as instruments of righteousness for His service, for His glory, what happens? Verse 14, the verse we didn't look at two weeks ago. Sin shall not be master over you. Sin shall not be master over you. Here's Paul's point. Sin cannot reign in our mortal bodies. Verse 12, the command, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Sin will not master us when we are presenting ourselves to him as a living, holy offering moment by moment, every day, making that conscious choice to present ourselves to him. And when we do, 
it defangs, it declaws sin. You are putting yourself in a position where sin shall not be master over you. Now, that's what Paul is saying in verse 6 again. If you know your true identity in Christ, the old self is crucified, there's a new you, well, the body of sin can be rendered ineffective. It can be rendered inoperative. That's the concept. With the result that we are no longer slaves to sin. This is what called, it's called living the Christian life. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to assume that every one of us here, if you know Jesus, cares about how to live the Christian life. If you don't, there's the door. Feel free to leave anytime. <laughs> that we're, we're here on this earth to honor and glorify God, right? I mean, that's why he saved us. We're, we're part of a, a wonderful plan of God for the ages to display his glory, to be a part of the plan of God that is going to, to bring in his glory to this world, to redeem it back this fallen, sinful world, and it's a mess. And he wants his people to rise up and reflect glory and honor to proclaim the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in this world. Not just sit around and twiddle our thumbs until we end up dying and, you know, say, hey, praise God, I'm going to heaven anyway. No, we're on a mission. We've got a wonderful uh, calling from God. And so he is, the moment of faith, he has empowered us with a new identity. And he's placed within us his righteousness that can be lived out, our sanctification. It can be lived out on a moment-by-moment basis as we consciously present ourselves, these members of our body that are so vulnerable and susceptible to sin to be lived out for his glory. Now, Paul adds in verse 14 a really wonderful, beautiful, powerful um, sentence or phrase in verse 14. He says, Sin shall not master you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Well, folks, I think that is one of the most powerful, wonderful verses in all of Scripture. You are not under law, you are under grace. And it's crucial that we understand that little phrase. You're not under law, you're under grace. What does it mean to be under law? Well, it simply means that we are under the demands, the righteous and holy demands of a righteous and holy God, we're under the demands of God and the requirements for living without any spiritual power to make it happen. Being under law says, do these things so that you can experience life. Do these things, obey these things. And being under law is the hopeless consignment of ourselves to a joyless and lifeless living existence, which is defined as the word death. Paul says, it kills me. Being under grace is living in the freedom that I am already accepted by God. And because of the gift of Christ's righteousness, His power 
will flow through me to literally obey the commands of God. Being under law says, do this, and you'll experience life. But no power to make it happen. And so all we do is experience defeat, failure, death. Paul says, it kills me. Under grace says, it's already been done. And so now appropriate what I have already given you so you experience freedom from sin's mastery. Sin shall no longer enslave you. Because you're not under law, you're under grace. It is said that John Bunyan once wrote these famous little words, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news God's grace doth bring. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You are not under law. You are under grace. That's the promise of God. Verse 14 has given us hope. It's given us the assurance that as we present the members of our body as instruments of righteousness for His glory, for His use, sin doesn't master us. And we begin to live out by the power that He gives us and fulfill the holy and righteous commandments of God. Righteous living. Now, the problem is we always want to put ourselves back under the law. We don't oftentimes get up in the morning and say, here I am, Lord. Oftentimes we get up in the morning and say, my George, you know, I'm going to do this thing. And so we seek to accomplish Christian living by obeying a bunch of do's and don'ts and putting ourselves and other people well, we pastors have a great job. We do that all the time. We put people on the law, legalism, all the time from pulpits. Paul said, you're not under law. <laughs> you're under grace. And being under grace means you've already received everything you need for life and godliness. Being under grace means that your sins are paid for. Even the sins we're going to commit 10 years from now, the rest of our life, they're paid for. We have full forgiveness. We are eternally forgiven. And we don't deserve it. That's grace. It means we, that we possess the very life of Jesus Christ. And we don't deserve that. It means that God sees us now as he sees his beloved son. And we don't deserve that, folks. It means that God looks down upon us with favor. He accepts us just like he accepts his son, and we don't deserve it. We're under grace. It means God, God looks upon me with his favor and his unfathomable love. I like how he put it, Paul wrote it in Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us to be adopted sons, as adoption of sons, through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the kind intention of his will and to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him verse 7 we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us good night folks we woke up this morning to a whole boatload of grace got poured out on us and this ain't a Pentecostal church, but I would sure like to hear an amen once in a while. 
Well, that was okay, but... But folks, God's grace is abundant. Being under His grace means when I fail and when I fall into sin, it doesn't change my, my identity with Him. It doesn't change His love for me. It means He even promises to give me a way of escape and when I don't even take that way of escape and I fail and I sin, He says, Mark, just confess your sin to me. I'm faithful, I'm just, I'll, I'll forgive your sins. We'll, we'll be back in harm. In fact, I, I won't even remember that sin. And all the evil one will sit here perched on our shoulder and whisper in our ear, you're a loser, you're a loser, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you failed, you failed, you failed. And I can say, hey, I'm under grace. Praise God. That's buried, gone. It's under the cross, the blood of Christ. And I don't deserve it. That's grace. It means that when I'm so tired, when I'm so weary of living in this sin-sick, fallen world, somehow, somehow, he infuses in me his strength. And I'm able to take that next step. That's his grace. I can mount up with wings of eagles. I can run and not get tired. I can walk and not grow weary. The Apostle Paul in... in, in um, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about a time where he was uh, uh, taken up into the, he said, the third heaven. He saw visions. He saw a revelation of things that were, you can't even speak about. And then Paul said, but in order to keep me from being proud, he gave me a, he said, a thorn in the flesh. And he said, man, was that a pain. And he said, I prayed three times for that thorn in the flesh to be taken from me. And he said, you know what God told me? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul said, most gladly, therefore, I'll, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And you get up in the morning and you've you got to figure out how, what, what, what's going to happen to my kids today in this crazy pandemic and the schooling and how am I going to do this and how am I going to spin this plate and accomplish this and what are we going to do here and, and you know, how will I make it through the job today and what are all the trials and tribulations of, of life living in a fallen world? And we go to him and we find a storehouse of riches of grace. Being under grace means I'll never exhaust that storehouse of grace. Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. It's a little preposition, by the way, in the Greek language that says that it's a preposition of exchange. So the more grace I take, the more grace he gives. I can never exhaust the bank account of God's grace. And he says it's there. <clears throat> Because you're not under law. We're under grace. I have constant access to God's grace. We look at that in, in chapter 5, in verse 2, when Paul wrote, Through him also we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. We have access to the storehouse of God's 
daily grace, unhindered access to the throne of grace, a permanent open-door policy to God's grace. Because we're not under law, we're under grace, and we stand there. We stand there, that means we, we rest in the sufficiency of it. We're not working, sweating, struggling to live in the position of grace. We're standing and enjoying the benefits of being under grace and no longer under law. The righteous, holy demands of God are still there. But we're not under law. We're not under the self-improvement programs. We're not under the list of do's and don'ts and in our own efforts to try to achieve it because he has placed within us his very presence he has declared us to be right. And then he says, as you moment by moment yield yourselves, present yourselves as instruments of righteousness, sin shall not master over you, be master over you. And we can live in the freedom of his grace and appropriate day by day and live with it day by day. Annie Johnson Flint gave some beautiful poetry and hymnology, hymns to the Christian church she was writing in the last of the 19th early 20th century annie johnson flint um, and for decades she it's a horrible story in the sense that for decades she was bedridden her body twisted up with rheumatoid arthritis incontinent diapered for decades of her life then she gets cancer and she goes she's going blind and her body racked with pain and twisted in agony she wrote some of the most beautiful poetry and hymns like the great hymn, He Giveth More Grace. When the burdens grow greater, He addeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, He multiplies peace. And when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary, no unto man. For out of the infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth, and he giveth, and he giveth again. Are you experiencing that, Christian? Are you experiencing the abundance of God giving and giving and giving? Because here's the reality. We're not under law. We're under grace. It's our birthright. Do we realize the incredible blessing? No, probably the answer is not fully. And that's why we have to do what Moses, the psalmist, did. We read it earlier this morning. We have to get up in the morning and we say and we pray to God, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Oh, God, help me to see the grace that you've given to me. The, un 
the unlimited storehouse of grace. Satisfy me in the morning, O oh God, when I get up and I've got to deal with those kids at that school or I've got to go to work in that job that I hate or not go to work because I don't have a job today. Oh Lord, satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness, with your grace. Help me to see it. Help me to appreciate that I'm not under a law. Help me to be so thankful that I'm not in racetrack Christianity. I'm just working, 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 trying to make this thing called the Christian life work. That I'm, I'm free of that. I can appropriate what you've done. Satisfy me in the morning with your loving kindness. That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And none of us deserve it. And that's why it's grace. Would you bow your head in prayer? And so, Father, thank you so much for the reality that has been proclaimed in your word through your inspired author, the Apostle Paul, in this wonderful book of Romans. That wonderful phrase, Father, in verse 14, by your Holy Spirit, you moved upon him and he took that quill and he wrote those wonderful words, we are not under law, we are under grace. And it is as real today, 2,000 years later, as it was when he wrote that. And we can experience that wonderful freedom and the newness of life. Be set free from the enslavement of old ways of thinking, old habits of living, being set free from sin by living under grace. So, fathers, we continue in our study of Romans in the weeks to come. Make that even clearer to us so that we can run this race with endurance as we fix our eyes, not on some cosmic ooze called grace, but in a, a living person whose name is Jesus. Because Jesus is grace. In his name we pray. Amen.